Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Today I present episode three of Hometown Stories, a summer series in which writers from the Habit membership and writers who are friends of the Habit membership share stories about their hometowns. Today we'll hear five stories involving fathers and mothers. Hometowns, after all, are full of fathers and mothers. Perhaps that explains why so many people live with fathers and or mothers when they were growing up in their hometowns. Our first story comes from Andrew Peterson. At the Habits Summer Writers Weekend a few weeks ago, Andrew was my guest for a podcast recording with a live audience of Habit members. You'll hear that interview in a later episode of this podcast. But before the interview, Andrew debuted the following story, in which his father takes a turn as Florida Man, everybody's favorite action hero. I called this the Christmas angel and the fall of man. We were home visiting my folks at their little Florida farmstead called Shiloh one Christmas a few years ago. The grandkids were all getting to the age where their Christmas presents were getting cooler and cooler rather than little toddler toys nobody wanted, including them. My mom and dad were giddy that all of us kids were home with all of our kids. And Christmas Eve was a fine, cool day with the kids running around the property inspecting the geese, the sheep, the chickens, and the solitary turkin. My dad confided in my brother and I that he had splurged on a zip line for the grandkids, an excellent present for them and for us. Since we only had a few days there, we convinced my dad to announce the present early to cheers from the grandkids so Pete and I could string it up and maximize the zip line time. We connected it to the treehouse, a solidly built structure that wasn't exactly a treehouse because it was on poles, but there was an old mossy pecan tree growing through part of it, so I guess it counts. The kids loved it. By this time, the sheriff, Jerry Whitehead, who was a longtime member of the church and a third generation sheriff, side note, his first wife was my Sunday school teacher and I had a sixth grade crush on her. (laughs) Anyway, anyway, Jerry had dropped off his little boy to play with our kids for the day and they were all impatiently watching as Pete and I looped one end of the wire around a young live oak, the other end way up in the treehouse around the pecan tree pulled it as tight as we could and secured it as best as we could. I think Pete went first, stepping over the railing of the treehouse, which was about 10 feet up, plus another six feet or so to reach the line. Grabbing the trolley and gingerly sinking down, allowing his weight to propel him forward. We had worked pretty hard to make it secure, but I still wouldn't have been at all surprised if the thing had collapsed. It held firm and Pete zipped down toward the live oak and came to a rocking stop. Success. I went next and then the kids all had a turn. And then we all heard the portentous sound of the screen door slam. We turned and saw my dad, who was not a small man, (laughs) striding out from the house, John Deere hat cocked back, pipe dangling from the side of his mouth. Let me have a turn, he said. We should have told him no. We should have come up with a good reason to get him back inside to his crossword puzzles. But as it happened, we all just stood there dumbly as he climbed the steps one at a time to the platform, somehow heaved himself over the railing and stood there, pipe still smoking. (laughs) All of a sudden, the Lord answered a prayer we didn't know we'd been praying. The house phone rang. Dad, being a small town preacher, couldn't miss a call from one of his parishioners. So he worked his way back over the railing, down the steps and hustled back to the house. We all breathed a sigh of relief and laughed nervously, even the sheriff's son. Just as we resumed our play, thanking the God of heaven and earth that my dad was still alive, we heard, as if in slow motion, the slam of the screen door again. (laughs) And the thud, thud, thud of dad's footsteps as he marched back out to the treehouse. Before we knew it, he was back up there, puffing away on his pipe, 
gleefully standing on the wrong side of the railing. What do I do? He asked. Well, I said, just maybe climb back over. <laughs> he didn't like that suggestion. Pete said, just sink down gradually and hold on for dear life. Well, the next 10 seconds changed Christmas in Lake Butler. Dad ignored Pete's advice, lunged forward with his elbows bent and launched into that cool Florida air. As soon as his weight snapped his arms straight, his hands slipped from the handles and he came down hard. I remember the sound of his ankle breaking. Both ankles rolled underneath him and he landed on his back. In the video, you can see us all just... <laughs> it's true. It's true. I think it was my sister who had the presence of mind to, to have her phone up and ready to go. Uh, in the video, you can see us all just standing there dumbfounded for a split second before we run to help. Dad was, Dad was shouting about his ankle, and one of us ran to the house to grab the cordless phone to call 911. I told Dad, we're going to have to call an ambulance. No, he said, don't do that. Dad, you're in bad shape, and we can't get you out of here. Why not? Because Bobby Jenkins is on duty today. And he's got a big mouth. If he, if he comes with that ambulance, everybody in town will know about this in 10 minutes. Dad was laughing in between groans of pain. Well, too bad, I said, and I dialed 911. The operator answered and said, 911, Brother Art, is that you? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> no, ma'am, it's Andrew, his son. Andrew, when did you get back into town? I bet your parents are plum tickled to have you guys back for Christmas. I thanked her and told her what was going on and she was clearly trying not to laugh. Why? Why in the world was he on that thing? Do you want me to call Jerry Whitehead? Well, his son is here and Jerry's on the way over anyway. All right, then I'll send an ambulance. Merry Christmas. A few minutes later, the ambulance pulled up and the medics climbed out, eyes twinkling. Brother Art, you okay? Hey, Bobby, Dad said with a groan. About that time, Jerry Whitehead came back and helped them, and what I mainly remember was seeing them all barely concealing their grins. Dad was hurt, yes, but they all knew it would be a good story later. They got busy and loaded him up, letting Mom ride in the back. After the ambulance left, the rest of us chastised ourselves for allowing it to happen, even while admiring Dad for his pluck or his foolishness or whatever it was that made him think a zip line was a good idea. A little while later, I swung by the local IGA grocery store to get something for mom, and everybody in there asked how Brother Art was. <laughs> Bobby had done his duty, it turned out. We headed to the hospital to check on him, and that's when things took another turn for the worse. Dad was in a hospital bed on pain meds and barely coherent as we all stood around him. At one point, he started singing a Christmas carol and was conducting it like a choir director. Mom told us the terrible news that not one ankle, but both ankles were broken. He would need surgery. That meant he wouldn't be in a crutch for a month or so, but in a wheelchair for months. That meant Pete, my brother-in-law Robert, and I would spend Christmas building access ramps so they could get into their house. It meant my dear mother would have to be a full-time caregiver till well into the year. Things went from kind of funny to quite sad. Then the pastor part of Dad, which is most of him, rose through the quagmire of meds and he turned his glazed eyes on me and Pete. The candlelight services tonight, boys. <laughs> You have to lead it for me. He slurred his words. The manuscript is on my desk. You know what to do. So we headed back to the church, and there on my dad's desk in a manila envelope was the carefully composed script for the Christmas Eve service. 
Things went off without a hitch, and the whole community stood around with candles at the end, singing Silent Night. I knew my mom wouldn't be alone in taking care of him after the, us kids headed home. There was 30 years worth of friends in that building who would glee, gleefully care for Brother Art and dear Janice, even as they gleefully told the story at Christmas about how their elderly preacher thought he was 10 years old that Christmas. <laughs> we have the whole thing on video, and to our delight, there's a frame of the video before the fall of man, as my brother called it. <laughs> where dad looks as graceful as an Olympic diver. His hands are still holding onto the trolley, his toes are still touching the platform, and his back is arched with a stunning kind of grace for someone of his age and size. The best part of the picture, if you look closely, you can see him grinning, and a little happy poof of smoke is trailing out of his pipe. Even when we fall, it turns out we're beautiful. In our next story, Gina Gallagher takes us to her hometown of Morgan, Pennsylvania. Gina's story is a tribute to her mother, and it's a tribute to a tribute to her mother. The Lamppost. The house where I grew up was nestled between two roads. One road ran along the front of the house, and the other road ran along the back. We didn't have air conditioning in those days. The back porch always seemed to catch the breeze. Many meals were served on the wrought iron glass top table. Many afternoons I sat on the porch with my mother, talking about everything and nothing. She had a way of making me feel as if all the things I had to say were incredibly important to her. She was a wonderful listener. She had the gift of making even the most mundane thing an event. I met the man who would be my husband when we were in high school. I came home from school and told my mother every detail, how I dropped my book on purpose and he picked it up, and how I didn't understand math very well, but he was so smart and it was never hard for him, how I wished we could go to a dance together. We did go to many dances together, but she never knew. My mother died when I was 15 years old. I was adopted and an only child. At a time when people had large families, there were only three people in mine. When families looked like each other, I looked vastly different. My five foot ten height seemed strange beside my mother, who stood only five foot three, and was not much better beside my father, who stood only five foot seven. Stand tall, my mother would say. Always be proud of your height. There's nothing nicer than a tall girl who enters the room with confidence. Whether that was true or not didn't really matter. It was drilled into me for so long, I believed it. As we sat on the porch many afternoons, we would see people go by. Many days, we saw a small, elderly man, neatly dressed, walking his little dog. His steps were quick and sure. He waved as he walked by. He always wore a hat, which he tipped in my mother's direction. We knew nothing about him, but we could set our clock by him. His punctuality was comforting. I remember the day we saw him coming down the road against a dark gray sky. He seemed a bit slower as he passed. The wind had kicked up a bit. It started to rain. My mother jumped up and grabbed her car keys. Come with me, she said. We're going to drive him and his little dog home. Up to this point, their two worlds never met. Their worlds were on either side of the porch screen. 
We drove around to the street behind our house. My mother pulled over and instructed the man to get into the car. He didn't hesitate. He picked up his little dog in one quick motion. He placed the little dog on his lap as he got into the front seat. I don't remember them talking much except when he gave my mother directions to his house. My mother brought the man safely home. He tipped his hat like he had done so many times before and walked into his house with his little dog in his arms. Not too long after that day, my mother died. She had a massive heart attack and collapsed on our kitchen floor. Lines were blurred. Familiar things seemed unfamiliar. There was a new normal. Many of the jobs around the house that used to be hers were now mine. At the funeral home, there were so many people trying to say all the right things. Their words were nothing I needed to hear. I was hot and tired and confused in this continuous sea of faces. I looked up. The small, elderly man, neatly dressed, was coming towards me. He took my hand. It was rough. Hard work had formed calluses along his palm. I didn't know what to say. He bridged the silence. She was my friend, you know. He walked away, the hat he always tipped held tightly in his hand. I, I needed air. I went towards the door without stopping. I had to see where he went. I opened the door and stepped outside. It was as if he disappeared. Then I saw him. He was by the lamppost. His little dog, tied to the lamppost, was waiting patiently for him. He rubbed the dog's head, untied the leash, and walked away. I will never forget the silhouette of that pair in the lamplight. I often wondered how the man got home. He was far from where my mother drove him that day. An act of kindness one afternoon bridged two worlds, and a stranger became a friend. Go and do likewise. I am beginning to understand. Corey Frazier Morgan grew up in Kent, Ohio. She explores the fraught history of her hometown and Kent State University in The Goodbye Love Generation, a novel in stories. In our next story, however, Corey turns to nonfiction to revisit the house she grew up in, a house her father made more lovely than it had to be. The House on Pearl Street. In 1976, my mom and dad bought their first house in Kent, Ohio, about three miles away from the university. The three-story, turn-of-the-century home on Pearl Street must have been beautiful once, but the last owner had let it fall into disrepair. A massive potbelly furnace that worked inconsistently was the only source of heat. The upstairs bedrooms were painted green and purple in a possible act of teenage rebellion. On their first night there, the porch roof caved in during a thunderstorm. My dad, an artist and craftsman, was undaunted. Over the next 20 years, he restored the house to its original grandeur. He knocked out and rebuilt all the walls, got new windows, upgraded the furnace, and replaced the roof. He refinished all the old, original wood trim for the entranceways, the banisters, and the baseboards. 
Later, he combined two of the upstairs bedrooms to make a playroom and connected two closets to make a secret passage from one room to another. My neighborhood friends and I would go on adventures that took us through the closet to other worlds, write stories and plays, and then disappear out into the yard to act them out for whatever audience came along. The house was our gathering place, and I always knew there was something special about it. It was as if I could sense the years layered between the walls, the decades of smallness and happiness enfolded in the turmoil of the passing history and the changing world. I always wondered who had preceded us. I didn't expect to ever find out. In 2013, I got a Facebook message from a woman named Sue who lived in Illinois. She wrote that she'd grown up in my parents' house and lived there until her family moved away in 1964, when she was 10. Her years in the house on Pearl Street were the happiest of her life, and she'd reached out to me because she wanted to share some old family photos and stories. It was the kind of message that might scare most people away and send them running for the block button. But I'd spent my whole life harboring curiosity, and the temptation was just too great. I asked to see one of the photos. There was a clicking sound on my messenger app as she typed, and then it appeared. It was my parents' living room. There was no mistaking it. The wooden trim that my dad had restored surrounded the windows and the dining room entrance. A Christmas tree covered in garish 1950s tinsel stood in the corner, surrounded by newly opened gifts of dolls, a baby carriage, and a reel-to-reel tape recorder. Red candles and cotton snow decorated the fireplace mantle. With the exception of the time-specific details, it could have been taken last Christmas. The messenger app clicked again, and another photo appeared. A little girl in a gingham blouse and shorts was in the yard standing under a tree next to her father, who was formidably dressed in a suit and bow tie. The tree had been cut down long ago. I was probably ten, and I'd cried when my parents told me that the tree was sick. But in the black and white photo, I could see the June sun casting light through the leaves, and although the picture was fifty years old, it made me remember what I'd lost. It was all there. Same walls, same trim, same long-lost tree. There were so many trees back then, and they were all so much younger, so much thinner. I started a conversation with this stranger who had reached out to me, with whom I had both nothing and everything in common. I asked her to tell me what she knew. We had the same bedroom. That was one thing we established outright, the corner one overlooking the driveway. I always liked it because there were two windows, and with my bed positioned in the corner, I could see out of both of them at the same time, at the street lights pouring light in from the road. It was a simple thing, but she knew exactly what I was talking about. The thing about growing up on Pearl Street, she said, was that the kids ran the neighborhood and everyone knew it. While the mothers all gathered at the house across the street for morning coffee hour, they played kick the can and mother may I in the street, 
followed by baseball, where the manhole cover on the corner served as home plate. She sent a picture of the six of them sitting on someone's porch steps, looking like rejects from the cast of The Little Rascals, bemused faces hiding their impish intentions. The day they moved away, Sue said, marked the end of her childhood. There was such imagination and fellowship in that house, in the people of that neighborhood, and nowhere else she's lived has even come close. We shared so much more than a dwelling. My parents have lived in that house longer than any other family in its 111 years. I think of my dad knocking out the walls and refinishing the trim and adding in the playroom and the secret passage, things the house didn't need, but that he knew my friends and I would love. I'd always known it was special, but not because he'd somehow imbued it with magic. It was nothing he'd done. According to Sue, it had been there all along. When Katie Rizzo was growing up, her winter wonderland of a hometown wasn't always wonderful. But a visit with her own children restored some of the magic of a holiday so artificial and touristy it has its own trademark. Winter School, trademarked by Katie Rizzo. Only a handful of kids grew up like me. My husband used to think I made up stories about how I was raised. I didn't. My husband was raised in Northern Virginia in a house that looked like every other home. Kids tossed the football in the cul-de-sac on Sunday after church with the smell of grilled meat hanging in the air. Parents waited till five to have their first beer. I grew up in a city nestled into the mountains where anyone with a pioneering spirit and a pile of money could buy a little land. In my hometown, homes sprung up that were as individual as their owners. People would design and build a McMansion, then leave it dark. Second or third homes rarely get used. My parents bought a dream home from a woman they, that thought through every inch of the place. It had eight bedrooms with multiple balconies and secret rooms. My parents, always the entrepreneurs, care, carefully divided it into six condominiums. They kept one as our home and rented out the rest. Our living room had a set of stairs that abruptly ended at a wall. These steps became a great metaphor for my parents' marriage. While I was growing up, kids in my hometown were an afterthought. On Sundays, all of us little people were shuttled to whomever had custody that week. There we played in the woods to the sounds of our parents bickering about if child support was meant to include orthodontia. In 1951, almost 20 years before I was born, the town decided to celebrate a made-up holiday called Winter School Trademarked. Winter School has evolved into a four-day festival held during the darkest days of winter, and for many, it is nothing more than a good excuse to drink. Winter School showcases a different contest every day. The competitions on Thursday and Friday vary, but usually include ski jumping and ice carving. Saturday is always hockey games that are so heated, they bleed into the next week. Sunday, the final day, begins with massive downhill races for everyone. It culminates that night when the town gathers at the base of the main lift to watch a torchlight ski parade 
followed by fireworks. One winter school, my stepdad and I took the lift up for the torch parade. I was around 10 that winter, old enough to ski while holding a flare. At the top, I got off the chairlift and looked down at the twinkling lights of town. The beauty in that moment was lost on me. The temperature was in the negative double digits. I pulled down my homemade pom-pom hat over my ears and I winced. I closely followed the other skiers down as my flare sent sparks off into the dark, each making a sound as it melted snow. All the years before, I stood at the bottom, miserable and cold, watching the dark individual skiers become an illuminated slithering snake. I thought participating would give me insight to why anyone would think this is fun. Suffice it to say, it didn't. I found myself longing for a family and a community like the one my future husband had a few thousand miles away. Life does that funny thing where it takes me full circle. 40 years later, my husband, kids, and I return home to celebrate winter school. My children's eyes sparkle with delight as I hand them their torch. They don't even pretend to listen to my warnings about the dangers of carrying fire while imitating a missile. They shoot off in fits of giggles and follow their dad. They're one with the giant snake. The blizzard kicks up. It's white all around. I dig my skis into snow and let them lead me to the magic. Our final story comes from Judith Miller. Her story is an homage to her father pastor who met people where they were, whether they were in Five Mile Town, Northern Ireland, or the Panhandle of Texas. Five miles and more. As a minister's daughter, I can claim the privilege of living in nine different homes in three different countries, all before I went to university. But when someone asks me where home is, there is one place I think of first. I spent part of my earliest years in Five Mile Town, a large village tucked between green fields and forests in the beautiful Clocher Valley in Northern Ireland. It was a great place to do some growing up, with the freedom to roam the one main street or further out into the countryside. Dad's stone-built church and the manse we lived in dated back to the late 1800s. It had an orchard, a small wood and wide lawns outside, but no central heating inside. Consequently, Dad spent a lot of his time occupied with fireplaces. Early in the morning, he'd clear out the ashes from the night before and set a new fire going with newspaper and peat. He'd spend the rest of the day trying to keep them lit. All year round, day and evening, there were two warm hearths in the kitchen and the living room. In colder months, he had more fireplaces to look after in the bedrooms upstairs. Before I was old enough to go to school, it was just Dad and I when Mum was out at work. Often he'd take me along in his pastoral visits. Some of these are my earliest memories. Stopping for a while to chat with peat diggers on heathery bogland. Afternoon tea surrounded by peacocks in the gardens of a stately home. Consoling a young mother as she stood in the wreckage of her bombed-out home. One day we set off into the country in his little Ford Cortina. 
At the dead end of a bumpy lane, we left the car behind and trekked across fields to a cottage that sat beyond the reach of any lane. As always, we were greeted warmly at the door and invited in for tea and buns. We stood for a wee while in front of the fire, but Dad's real reason for visiting lay in the room next door. His cup of tea and his conversation with the middle-aged lady drawing to a close, I followed him into the only other room where a large bed took up most of the floor. There, wrapped warmly in blankets, slept a tiny woman, the oldest-looking person I had ever seen. Her long white hair and wizened face were enough to frighten a small girl like me. But from the corner where I stood, I watched as Dad took her hand and spoke her name. She turned her head on the pillow and after a moment responded to his smile. Drawing a stool closer to her side but never letting go of her hand, he chatted to her, just as he did with the peat diggers and the posh people. Though she was bedbound and dying, he poured light into that room and that lady as he blessed her with his attention and his prayers. There came another time when we crossed green fields together, but these were the fields behind our house, and we weren't on our way to visit someone, but fleeing from a bomb left outside the creamery across the road. We just kept walking until hours later when a farmer let us know the device had been diffused and it was safe to return home. Within a couple of years, we had left Five Town behind completely and emigrated to a city on the Panhandle Plains of Texas. That first unbelievably hot summer, before we had saved enough money to buy a car, Dad did all his pastoral visiting by bicycle. Eventually, horrified by the ridiculously overheated state of the new Irish minister when he arrived at their ranch one afternoon, one family took pity on him and lent him one of their cars. It was a Mustang, an orange one. I don't think Dad fully appreciated the make and model, but he certainly appreciated the air conditioning. He also loved the fact that the ranch family started coming back to church. I guess they were impressed with his determination and maybe his great crack and most probably the way he gave his full attention to people in all its wonderful abundance. There weren't any fireplaces in our ranch-style house in Amarillo, so Dad had more time to do the things he loved most, trekking across fields, cycling through deserts, or cruising down the I-40 in a Mustang. Dad didn't mind if he was in Ireland or far from home. Wherever he was in the world... He was forever chasing after his calling to light fires in people and keep them lit. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.